0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, We are going to continue. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to um, actually start off with john chapter four reading the text today we're going to close this chapter out so if you would open your bibles to john chapter four <clears throat> we're going to read verses 27 through 42 john chapter four 27 through 42 just then his disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. For we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, just real quick, are there, are there any, any sports fans in this room? Like, you, you, like, you're, like yeah, you follow some kind of team, college, any kind of professional sports? So, okay, good, good, good chunk of you guys. Well, I'm one of them, okay? Uh, I follow uh, basketball and football and I'm a, unashamedly a Lakers fan and a, and a Redskins fan. Don't judge me, okay? Um, yes, it was a terrible year for me in, in, in both those respects, but nonetheless, I'm still a fan. And if you think about it, some of the biggest worship services happen at these venues, don't they? I mean, you're thinking about some of these stadiums, like Michigan Stadium, you know, the home of the Wolverines. Any Wolverine fans here? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You must be an Ohio fan, right? Um <laughs> I mean, Michigan Stadium houses over 115,000 people, right? Um, I mean, some of these college football stadiums are, are just ginormous, right? Even some of the soccer fields in, in the rest of the world are, you know, housing over 150,000 uh, people. And thousands of th- upon thousands of these fans stockpile into these stadiums to watch their heroes. And, and you know what? If you, if you look at the camera and you look at these fans, they also sing and they dance and, and they yell and they... Put on funny clothes and they, you know, they, they design their face in a funny way and sometimes they'll pull off their shirts and, and put letters on their bodies. It is really a worship service. You don't need to tell those people to celebrate. You don't have to give them instructions. It's okay, guys, we're going to cheer now, right? I mean, the, the, the fans that are there, they know and, and, and just hardwire in them is this, this desire to to celebrate, and you don't even need to tell these fans to be passionate about their team, like to, to talk about their team. No, because they're passionate about their team and they love their team, they're, they're going to tell people about that team. And I tell you that because naturally all of us here are, are worshipers and we're naturally evangelists. And I want you to, we're going to have to use our imagination for a little bit, okay? Regardless of whether you've played the game of basketball or not, it, it's irrelevant. But I do love the game of basketball, and I just want us to all picture that, that um, you're on this team, you're on this basketball team, and you're, 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 in, the, you're in the locker room, and, and uh, it's before, like, it's the first game of the season, you haven't even played a minute, a second on the court yet, and, and the coach is there, and he's, uh, you know, he's telling you, okay, guys, uh, he gathers a team around, and you look around at your team, and you're like, man, I don't know how we're going to, lo- like, I don't know how we're going to win this season. You look around, you're just nothing but disappointment as you look at some of your other players. But the coach is very passionate, and he says, you know what? I guarantee that we're going to win the championship at the end of the year. I guarantee it. All right, that's my promise to you guys. All you guys need to do is go out and play. What would you be thinking at that point? We're going to come back to that. But Last week, uh, we looked at John, the first half of John chapter 4, and we see there that Jesus, clearly one of the key principles from John chapter 4, verse 1 through 26, in this encounter with this unnamed Samaritan woman, is that Jesus offers his living water, eternal life, to all people. Jesus' offer of eternal life knows no bounds. It knows no racial bound. It knows no social bound. It knows no economic. It just, it just, It's, it's boundless. The, the eternal life that Christ offers is, is available to all. Is that good news, everyone? That is, right? And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing about the gospel, and it's a beautiful thing that we'll see when we look at the life of Christ, that, that he clearly offers this living water to everyone so that none will thirst. And we clearly see that from his encounter with this Samaritan woman that some key things that I see that are just... Uh, very, very simple. And uh, I'm, when I say simple, I, I, I differentiate that with easy, all right? Simple doesn't mean easy, right? But simple means it's understandable. It's, it's I mean, Jesus has given us this very simple, reproducible even methodology, you know, of, of, of how we're to go about and engage the culture around us as well. And a couple of things that I clearly see from the life of Christ in this encounter with a Samaritan woman, as well as encounters... Previously, with Nicodemus or or any of his encounters, Jesus simply made himself available. When he ministered to people, he 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 said, "Hey, I'm available here to talk with you. My time, uh, my resources are here. I'm available." Another thing that I clearly see in Jesus is that Jesus is very highly invitational. He's not standoffish. Just as he engaged this woman, he, he was inviting her into a relationship with himself, and he also engaged. And it's here that we come now to uh, verse 27, when we see the disciples coming back, and, and they see Jesus talking with this woman, and they marveled. They marveled that Jesus was, was, was speaking with the woman, but, but the scriptures tell us that no one asked, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? But they were sure thinking it. And maybe they weren't so shocked that he was talking to a Samaritan. I think the disciples were more shocked that he was talking to a woman. Because in this day and age, in that day and age and culture, I mean, it was, it, was, it was like women couldn't learn the Torah. It was, in fact, considered shameful if you were to teach women the Torah. In other words, in, that meant dialoguing with women. But there in 28, it tells us that this woman had, uh, after her conversation with Christ, she leaves her water jar and goes back into the town of where she's from. And she asks, can come, or comes, she proclaims, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Another thing that we see at the life of Christ from last week is that at, Of course, Jesus is highly invitational, relational, and he engages the people that he comes into contact with. But we also see that Jesus was completely full of all grace and all truth. He was breaking all the social norms of his day in speaking not only to a woman, but also to a Samaritan woman. And this was the first time that he reveals his identity as the Messiah, and it's to an unnamed Samaritan woman. And we know that Jesus, as he was engaging her, as we learned last week, is that Jesus didn't skirt over her sin. He just got right to the heart of the sin. And Jesus does that masterfully, and she has she has this profound just discussion with him, and in her heart it's burning. It's like this 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 is not just a man. This is this has gotta be. Can this can this be can this be the anointed one? Can this be the Christ, the Son of God? And do you find it interesting that this woman who we know has been ostracized, who who has had multiple husbands and who now is living with someone who's not her husband, we know that even in her social norm that she would have been ostracized because she had more than three marriages. She was living with someone that she was not married with as well. And she was alone at the well at at the hottest part of the day. And yet this same woman who comes into contact with Jesus, all right, runs back into the town. And it's very interesting. We can't read too much into it, even though some people have attempted to, but she left her water jar at the well. The very thing that she came to do, she, she left. And, and you'll see in the Gospels that this is a, a common trait of people, right? When, when Jesus called uh, the first disciples, I mean the fishermen, right? He said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets, right? Right? I mean, here, this woman who just encountered Jesus, I mean, she came to that well to get water, and she left it there, and she immediately went back into her town. What drove her to do that? The same woman that came to this well all alone, I mean, ostracized, probably have kept to herself, and, and has probably naturally become this introverted person, just person that keeps to herself, and now is like, i got to go back into the town, and i got to tell people. It's really Amazing. And the 31 tells us that it's now that these, this lady has left and the disciples, remember, Jesus had sent them in to, to get food and they're like, Rabbi, eat. And he says something interesting to them. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And don't you love the disciples? I mean, I, I, I pray that you guys would see yourselves in the disciples. Every time I, I read about the disciples, I see myself, I see myself there because there, I'm constantly misunderstanding the sayings of Christ. But he says that, and they're like, like did someone bring like, some food to this guy? Like, I mean, he's not hungry anymore? That's what they're asking, right? Maybe they thought it was some miracle, like the, like the ravens bringing food to Elijah. I don't know, because he was there, and he had sent them to get food, and he's like, like, what's going on? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And this is, this is very profound because this is an outworking reality. Like God is showing us what this looks like, what Deuteronomy chapter 8.3 looks like in real life. And it's all centered around this person of Jesus Christ. Sorry, I don't have this verse uh, up here, but Deuteronomy 8.3, it says this. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus was showing us that this is the practical outworking of this commandment, and it's, it's in this person of Jesus Christ. And it's our call, our call is, this, is the same exact thing, and thank God that Jesus has made this clear. Our food, our sustenance should be to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. And that is done simply through obeying him. We're going to talk more about obedience. One of the things that we also have to know as Christians is this obedience, this call to follow Jesus, also costs us everything. And if you're following a Christianity that teaches that it does not cost you much, I highly doubt that is authentic Christian faith. Because the call to follow Jesus is a call to leave everything, and to follow him. And we see that here in Jesus' statement. That I've, the food that I eat is to do my Father's work. Jesus came to do the Father's will. Look at John 5.36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Speaking of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. That the Father has sent me. John 8.29. This is... Simple statement that Jesus always did the Father's will. It says here, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then why? Look at John six thirty-eight through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the part of that accomplishing the will is to redeem, is to save the world. We clearly see that in another passage in John three sixteen through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is exactly what his food was to do the father's will here. Is that good news, brothers and sisters? That the, that, that the father through his son has come to rescue and renew and redeem all of creation. Of course, course that includes the lives of individuals, but we also know that part of God's redemptive work is all of creation, right? We know Romans tells us that creation is longing, that sin has even affected um, the very fabric and DNA of creation itself. And of course, one day, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where everything is going to be completely restored, but that begins with the Son of God. Then Jesus says another interesting thing. He says, there are yet... In verse thirty-five, there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. There's been a lot of different like interpretations as we're coming here into, into these few verses. Uh, different, and maybe you've heard it taught a uh, different way, but uh, I believe that that's a, a proverb. And perhaps uh, Jesus is speaking. Uh, some some theologians will, will time this. Day, hey, it's December, um, and it's most likely the harvest is hap- uh, going to happen in, in April or May. Um, and we know that um, that of course wheat, as it's um, when it does become ripe, right? Under a certain light, I mean, if you were to look at a field, you'll see the white kernels, and the, that's a, that signifies that man, it's, it's it's ready for it's ready to be harvested harvest harvested. And we see that here in, in verse 35, that Jesus used the same image of sowing and reaping. And he, he, he uses it also as a picture of this. It's going to be this time of extraordinary fertility. It's, just going to be, it's going to be crazy. And Jesus is using this reference to the harvest of souls, of people. It's about, I mean, it's, it's taking place right now as he's speaking to this woman at the well. He just had this conversation And now she's gone into the town to tell her fellow townspeople. And there's one commentator by the name of G.R. Beasley Murray. He he explains that if uh, Jesus saw the Samaritans coming to him in their white garments, possibly, not saying that everyone was wearing white. And that is why he said, as the Greek original has it, the fields are white for harvesting. Look at Matthew 9, 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I can almost picture Jesus not saying we know exactly where he was looking at the time. But I mean, he's speaking about people. And when he tells his disciples that the harvest is white, all right? He has people in his mind. And he's telling him, guys, the harvest is ready. It's ready to be harvested right now. So much so that in 36, he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And this is amazing because this is fulfilling an Old Testament uh, prophecy in which the prophet Amos speaks of a time in verse Amos chapter 9.13 where Amos, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. There's going to be this time in which both sowing and reaping are going to happen at the same time. Or that time between sowing and reaping is going to be such a small window. And both the sower and the reaper are going to be working together. And they're both going to be rejoicing. It's amazing. Verse 39 tells us, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Again, ref, this woman is referring to the fact that Jesus knew her darkest secrets and he addressed them, but yet he welcomed her into this relationship. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And he was, Jesus was showing his disciples, look, I mean, he spoke, with the, uh, he spoke with this woman a few moments ago, and she comes to know him, and immediately, what does she do? She runs off to tell this. I mean, she's transformed, and she, she can't help but talk about Jesus, right? She's like, I, I got to tell you this. Let me tell you about this guy that, that told me everything that I ever did. And the townspeople, for whatever reason, I don't know what that dynamic looked like, for whatever reason, they're like, whoa, whoa like this, the same la- the same lady. And they decide for whatever reason to go out and to see if this is the Messiah. And they do come out. And think about this response that the Samaritans give Jesus opposed to other responses he had in some other villages he went to minister to. The Samaritans said, please stay, Jesus. Please stay. And what did he do? He stayed and he taught for two days. And from that that short amount of time, they came to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's amazing. And Jesus was telling his disciples, like, this window of sowing and reaping, boom, it's right here. It happens that quickly now. Now, when you think about the kingdom, when you think about the reign and rule of Christ, and you you think about Jesus' reign and rule, what does that do in your heart? Because I believe the kingdom is both here and now and has a future reality. Obviously, I mean, well, I mean we're, not, we're not here to create heaven on earth. We're not here to create some kind of false utopia. But I believe that the reign and rule of Christ that is going to come in full actualization, right? That, that even like those realities are being ushered in today. Like for example... When someone's life is redeemed or someone is freed from any kind of of addiction or any kind of just bondage to sin, that's a picture of a future reality that can be experienced now. Amen? When you can be, I mean, when people can be set free and there could be genuine life transformation, right? I mean, just, I mean, uh, for Christians, right? It's like, man, I don't know who you are anymore. I mean, you're such a different person since you've met Christ. So when you think about the kingdom of God, what comes to your mind when you think about the reign and rule of Jesus? And do you treasure it? Because when you, when you hear the, the teaching of the kingdom of God, if it doesn't move you, there's, there's a chance that, 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 that there's something blocking uh, that, that understanding of the kingdom. Because Jesus says in Matthew 13, to 46, In back-to-back parables, he tells a parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. And he says here that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, a simple parable of, of two people that found something of so, such great value that they were willing to give up everything they owned to possess it. And Jesus is speaking about the kingdom, his reign, and his rule. So there's a reason why that's part of the Lord's prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray that, we're praying, Lord, we want to see your reign and rule. Like, we, want it to see, we want it to invade every crevice of society, We want to see your reign and rule in every neighborhood, in every place of work. I mean, we want to see your reign and rule McDonald's among the employees there. Now, let me ask you, is there any realm in which Jesus does not want his lordship over? Is there any? And one day in the future, I mean, he's going to have he's going to have lordship over every single realm, right? So we see that in that future reality, it's being ushered in today, and we want to see that, right? And who does he want to use to do that? It's us. We're the church, right? And I know that this is simple, basic teaching, but I meet so many Christians that have never made a disciple. But the longing is there. I want to make a disciple, but but there was never a disciple made. And I think uh, for, for some Christians, we've really cheapened the grace of Jesus Christ. This woman that had encountered Jesus and fully just, I mean, he fully revealed his, his Christship to this woman and she was forever transformed. But this whole The concept of cheap grace is the emphasis is really on the benefits of Christianity without the cost involved. So hence the adjective cheap. And um, a well-known pastor that talks a lot about this concept about cheap grace is is a pastor and theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, And he wrote a book called The Costs of Discipleship. And if you want to be convicted, just pick it up and read it. (laughs) And then in the first 10 pages, there'll be a lot of conviction there. There was for me. But I just wanted to read a quote to you from this book. It made me think of like why, why Lord, don't we at times take this, this mandate of making disciples and of seeing that the harvest is wide and for, and, and, and for understanding that we're to be sent out and to take initiative. He says this, "'Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy.'" for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Brothers and sisters, one of the simple, profound truths we can grab from John 4 is that disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. And we know that Jesus calls all of his disciples to follow him. And He calls every he, that call to, to everyone that would claim to, to follow Christ is, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then this becomes our joy and this becomes our privilege. And let us not cheapen the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us for a purpose. He saved us to glorify himself. And how does that happen? You see, when, when you think of that word glory, I want you to think of the word weight. That's one of the meanings of the of the word uh, um, of glory. It's like weight. And there are many areas of our society in which God is not being given weight. Worship. And as we said, what is the vehicle that He wants to use to bring glory back to Himself? It's the body of It's the body of Christ. It's the church that would go and be His witness. And one of the ways that we cheapen the grace of God also is when we divorce faith and obedience. I don't know how we got there, and I don't know how, like even, I'll read some Christian literature where there's, I mean, it's not explicit, but implicit, there's this somehow divorce of faith and obedience. But we know that faith, biblically, that that faith and obedience are the same, and they're so tightly integrated that to separate them would mean the loss of both. Does that make sense? I mean, it's the same concept of grace and truth. That to separate grace and truth, like if you were to take one of those out of the equations, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have grace or truth. Because grace is meaningless without truth, right? And truth without grace, it's not really truth. And the same goes to say faith and obedience as well as repentance and belief. For example, look at 1 John 2, 3 to 6. John writes this, And by this we know that we have come to him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected and by this we may know that we're in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked the biblical understanding of knowledge is not just like hey i just know these facts about jesus no i know and therefore i'm going to obey they're intertwined So this call to make disciples is for every single disciple of Christ. And we know that as Jesus was talking um, to his disciples, he was saying that both the sower and the reaper are going to work concurrently. I mean, and the reaper is going to begin to gain his wages. It's a beautiful thing when you think about that concept of sowing and reaping. Now, my question to everyone is, are we involved in that process? Are we involved in the process of one sowing to where we're looking and we're identifying areas in our own life, in our own spheres of influence in which the harvest is white? In which, you know, ask yourself, are there people in your life, in your place of work or just in your sphere of influence in which God has given you favor with that person? Or have you even looked? Looked. And are there people in your life that are just right now on the cusp, ready to, ready to have a relationship with the Lord? They just need that worker who has the message of the gospel to say, would you like a relationship with Jesus Christ? You'll be amazed at even just asking people, hey, would you, are, you, are you interested to talk about God? Would you like to know more about God? Most people are receptive to have that kind of conversation. And what we tend to do as believers is we tend to elevate one process over the other, or like, hey, I just want to be part of the reaping, you know, I don't want to be part of the I don't want to be part of the sowing, you know. I want to see people saved. And let me tell you that equally are both I mean both critically, critically important. And both are the work of the Lord. And in Acts one, six through eight. When they had come together, they asked him, the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would know that um, naturally we're all worshipers and evangelists. We naturally love things and are drawn to things. And we naturally talk about the things that we love. And here in Acts 1, 6 through 8, it's just, it's just so interesting that the disciples ask, him, ask Jesus that question. After he's resurrected, I mean, they'd come together and, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And you remember I asked you to uh, picture ourselves as we're this basketball team, Right? And I want you to picture that we're about to start our season together. And there in that locker room, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are there. And, uh, you know, they, they gave us a promise. Hey, you guys are going to win the championship. The outcome is guaranteed. Just go out and play. My natural tendency, and I think many of ours in this room, would be like, wait, wait, can I ask a question, Jesus? And just as the disciples had asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I too would be asking questions. If this was basketball, some of the questions I would ask my coach is, Hey, coach, are we going to win the game? If so, by how many points, coach? Does anyone get hurt? Do I get hurt? How bad do we beat them? How many points do I score? Coach, what are going to be my stats at the end of the season? And, I mean, the coach is patiently listening to us, right? And then he says, it's not for you to know the times. But I'm guaranteeing the outcome. He says, you're going to receive power. Coach tells us we're going to win. He guarantees it again. And he says, look, guys, just go out and play. All you got to do is step out into the court and actually participate and go play. Now, if you knew that with the utmost certainty that the outcome of your season was guaranteed and you were going to win the championship, can I ask you, how would you be playing? I mean, I would be trying like every crazy thing I could, right? No matter how foolish it looked like, I would be be at times, I wonder if I just take this half court shot here, you know? I would play hard. Be trying everything, and it's funny because the three things that we can, the three biblical categories that we can, uh, the three things that we can repent of, is rebellion, unknown, and unbelief. Now I've spoken on this, but I, this applies to this lesson as well. Is that rebellion is, is is the things that we know are wrong and we do them anyway? That's rebellion, right? Unknown, like maybe you didn't know something was wrong and now it's been made known to you. Okay, well, you got to repent of that. But lastly, the category is unbelief. There are times that we don't believe. It's the very reason why the Israelites could not enter the promised land because they did not believe and did not obey God. But here, how I see this playing out in this, in this, in, in this, uh, in this sports illustration here is sometimes when we're playing the game, all right, we feel pretty good about ourselves and we're like, you know, we're doing well, we're playing hard. And uh, coach is like, hey, run the play. And rebellion is like, no, I don't want to run the play. I'm going to do something. I'm going to figure out my, my I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my own play. I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to do it this. This is the, the player that uh, maybe is not involving his teammates, thinking more highly of himself than he should. Maybe he thinks his team couldn't do anything without me. And the coach says, hey, involve your teammates. And you score and you say, oh, I got this. Coach tells you to call the play that centers around another player, but you go ahead and you shoot at yourself again. Luckily, our coach is very patient. Our coach isn't passive. He's patient, and he tells you again, run the play, and again you don't. You know that you should listen to your coach, but instead you rebel anyway, and he disciplines you by taking you out of the game. What about the unknown? Sometimes we don't know every little in and out of the game but the coach points it out to us, right? Like illustration, like after the game, coach asks you to sit down and he talks about the game and you guys look at tape together and he says, hey, you see here where you kind of missed your assignment. You know, you should have passed the ball here and oh man, I totally didn't know. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll look out for that coach. But lastly, what about unbelief? And I think this is where a lot of us struggle. And I know we can find areas of our lives when this call to make disciples, like we rebel and there's things that are unknown, but at times we just don't believe. Sometimes it looks like, for example, if you're picturing this player and you're on this, you're on the court, sometimes it looks like we're losing. Like you look and your teammate, you know, he just tore his ACL. And you're like, man, like our star player just got hurt. Like, can we really can, is the season really going to be salvageable? You look at the opponent, they're bigger than you, they're stronger than you, and they're faster than you. And you're like, can we really, can we really win this? And they seem to be do- dominating your team in every statistical category. And guess what? You begin to get discouraged. You look at the score, and you're down by 30 points. And you look at your stats, and you're like, man, I, I shot 0 for 15. We're down by 30. Multiple turnovers, missed my last 15 shots, and I couldn't, I couldn't get the ball to my teammate in time. I screwed up the play. We're done. This game is over. Just give up. Do you see what unbelief does in this call to make disciples, right? But what does what the gracious and patient Father do? He calls a timeout. He says, team, bring it in. And he looks at us, and he reminds us who we are. And he reminds us that you know what the outcome of the season is guaranteed so know who you are and go on and play because we're going to win the championship now brothers and sisters i pray you would know that as we as we enter this call to make disciples it's we're going to mess up I mess up all the time in this process of making disciples. I've shared the gospel in ways I should not have shared the gospel. I've, I've shared the gospel prematurely at times with people in my life. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've burned relationships before and have to go back and mend them, you know, before because maybe of my own self-righteousness. We're going to mess up. But the coach guarantees the outcome, and he gives us the command to just go play, just go play the game. Don't worry about all these minuscule things. Don't worry about your stats. Don't worry about, about all these other things. Just, just, just get onto the court and play. And I pray that, uh, one, brothers and sisters, one, are we looking? Because the harvest is white. And if you don't see that the harvest is white, the first thing we got to do is pray. We have to pray. And we have to pray and we have to ask the Spirit, Spirit, reveal, reveal. A few weeks ago, I just, I had woken up and I just kept reading Matthew 9, 37, 28 about praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers. And I just prayed. I said, Jesus, would you just give me like, just, just give me multiple opportunities to speak about your son. Okay. I'm not even talking about like seeing salvation. Just give me multiple opportunities to speak about Jesus. And that week, countless times, God just opened opportunities with people that I hadn't talked to for such a long time, calling, hey, can we meet up? Just, just want to talk. And the very first thing is, hey, can we just talk about God? Amen. And multiple people, time and time again, just give an opportunity to speak about Christ. So one, let's pray. Let's pray that the, Spirit would, the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see that the harvest is white. Who are the people in our lives that you've put that you want us to be a gospel witness to? And just to give you some simple ways in which we make disciples. Because I want to really celebrate the ordinary. And this may sound so like mundane and ordinary to you, but we've got to lift them up. We all, well, most people, we eat 21 meals a week, right? What if just one time this week, you could, you could take that person out to lunch or have them over for dinner or meet them early for breakfast? You don't need to cram gospel down their throat, but remember, we're talking about sowing and reaping. What if you could just take them out and just, just ask them, hey, what's your story? Where are you from? Is there anyone that can't do that? Like, it's impossible? What if um, you could find a simple way this week that you already have a relationship, you're established, that you could bless that person? What if they have kids and you could just say, hey, can I, can I watch your kids so that you and your you and, your, um, you and your husband or you and your wife can go out and, and enjoy a date night. I mean, what if you could shovel their driveway? What if you could um, get their mail? I, I don't know. There's so many ways that we can bless. How about celebrate? Are, what about these people in your lives that don't know Christ? Do you know their birthday? Do you know their anniversary? Do you know like a special day? I mean, you know, can you have them over and celebrate? And just to give you just like simple ideas, are there people in your life that that are suffering, that don't know Christ? Can you you just carve out more time in your life to make yourself available to them and just ask them, what can I do to help you? And are there people in your life right now that are ready to hear the gospel? The beautiful thing that I love about about this is, as believers, we need to partner with each other, okay? Okay. Because I believe evangelism to, take, uh, to have three components. One, we have to be able to introduce people to community. Two, we have to build relationships. And at some point, you've got to share the gospel. Amen? Right? And if you think, if, when, like, I've been part of teams in which we've been able to do that together. Where, where maybe there's a group of people that introduce him to the community. And there was a couple other guys that, that, like, that build relationship with him. They went out. They went out shooting. And they just hung out and ate together. And I had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And, and they got saved. And I've been, I've been part of each uh, one of those opportunities, too, where I was building a relationship with someone, and another friend of mine shared the gospel with this person. And that's how we're to work together and partner for the kingdom. And it's not difficult. It's very simple. There's a reason why the Lord Jesus Christ gave us a very simple process of evangelism, because he meant it to be reproducible, and that would happen over and over again. Again, not easy. Simple isn't easy, okay? It's It's difficult. Because we have so many other things that we're battling, but it's very simple to understand and really to do. And the Holy Spirit will do the impossible through us. Amen. Okay. So if you would just pray with me, and um, as we have our eyes closed, I can we just think about? Can we just think about those people in our life right now? that God has placed. Whether they be the most difficult person you think, or whether it's a person that right now just clearly comes to your mind. I'd like to pray for them. Father, you are the Lord of the harvest. We want to acknowledge that. Lord, we want to also acknowledge that you are sovereign and only you can change a person's heart. We don't do that. But Lord, we do play a part because you designed it to happen that way. You designed to use the church to make disciples. There's no no plan B. It's the people of God, redeemed by the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, sent out to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. So, Lord, we're not going to abdicate our responsibility and our call and our privilege. We're just asking, one, we're asking for all these people that we have in our minds, people that we love dearly, people that we want to just come to know you as Lord and Savior, as this Samaritan woman did. And Lord, Jesus, we're asking, um, one, that you, would, that you would begin to prepare their hearts. And that, Lord, you would use us in this process of sowing and reaping, Lord. I pray that there would be believers that would begin partnering with each other and praying with one another for these people. And Lord, that we would give up that individual uh, missionary mentality and say, no, we need the community of God because we need to see John 13, 34, and 35 lived out, that by this all men will... All men will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. I'm praying that we would begin to form partnerships and just um, um, families to where we can have space for, for people in our lives that don't know you and that we could minister to you and make ourselves available to them just as you made yourself available. You yourself took initiative. You yourself went out and you engaged the lost. Give us that heart, Lord. Forgive us for our petty fears, Lord. We know that it's not a sin to merely have fear, but if we're paralyzed in fear, then we're not trusting you and we have a lot of unbelief. So, Lord, we do ask for spiritual courage. Give us the courage to love. Give us the courage to to speak the gospel when we're given the opportunity. Help us to, to remove every unnecessary offense from the gospel because we know that the gospel is offensive, but at times we put unnecessary roadblocks, maybe Cultural patterns or certain things, Lord. I pray that the only offense to the gospel, to the gospel we proclaim, is that Jesus Christ has been crucified. And Lord, we do pray for all those people in our minds. We're asking, Lord, we're asking that you would draw them to you through your son Jesus and you would birth new life there, Lord. And Father, we also pray for all of us here as believers set our hearts on fire for you, for your glory. And we know that when we get a picture and glimpse of your glory, we'll have a desire to make disciples, that make disciples. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.